Hey everyone, this is Nick and welcome to this new episode of your Linux and open source news podcast. So this week we have a pretty concerning blog post from the developer of CoreJS, which is one of the most used libraries on the web, uh, mostly used to bring back some features to older browsers, and it just can't get appropriate funding, despite it being really, really well used, especially by giant tech companies. We also have the Mycroft project shutting down, unfortunately, and failing to supply backers with their devices. Now, fortunately, we also have some good news with KDE Plasma 5.27 being the biggest KDE release ever, probably, and Thunderbird making great progress on their future redesign. We also have some insight on how Google kind of fails to produce anything of value anymore. Uh, we have some security warnings for various packages and for Python developers. And we have more AI-related and ethical behavior from Apple this time. So, before we dive in, you know the drill, you'll find all the links to the articles and websites that I use to make this podcast in the show notes. And the usual reminder, this show is currently exclusively user-funded, so if you like it without ads or sponsors, you can also find ways to support the podcast in the description. Okay, now let's get to it. So, let's begin with CoreJS. Uh, their developer explained in a very, very lengthy blog post basically how the open-source funding model is broken. Now, they only talked about their own experience working on CoreJS, but from what I've read or seen, every ba basically major open-source library developer faces the same thing. Uh, they just cannot get any funding, despite their stuff being used in a lot of other projects. Now, CoreJS, uh, what is it exactly? It's one of the most popular libraries for web development. It implements JavaScript support for the latest standards, the ECMA script, sorry, uh, standards, and they also implement some support for ancient features that modern browsers might have been willing to phase out. It's basically what we call a polyfill libraries that provides modern features to older browsers that don't natively support them. Now, this library is huge. It has 9 billion total downloads on NPM, and around 250 million new downloads per month. And it is listed as a dependency by 19 million GitHub repositories, which means that it is probably one of the biggest open source JS libraries that ever existed. And it is used by some giant tech companies like PayPal, like eBay, Apple, Netflix, LinkedIn, and a lot more. And still, the developer just cannot get enough funding to justify working on that project. So in, in their blog post, the developer goes over how the development started for CoreJS and their general goal, which was improving web compatibility for everyone. And they also go over some personal life events that contributed to making development difficult. They're not just pinning it all on, yeah, people just don't contribute. They're also saying that they had life changes that made their life more difficult and that also contributed to that change. But the core of the issue is that getting funding for open source libraries, for development libraries, is extremely complicated. Because if you add messages during the install of your package asking for user contributions, you get plenty of hate messages accusing you of e-begging and asking you to remove it. And the introduction of npm fund, which is a command that lets you know how to fund a specific package, also disabled these kind of install post-install messages asking for contributions. 
which meant that basically after they implemented that uh, please help support the development message, they got a few backers, but after NPM fund was introduced, that number of backers started to decrease. And at this point, the developer says that they earn less than four or five times what they could make if they took a full-time development contract for another company, which means that it is actually very difficult to justify keeping working on that library full-time when they could just go and do something else. Now, their current monthly revenue seems to be at around $1,700, which is absolutely on the low side for a full-time dev gig, uh, whether you're living in France, in the US, or in a Western country, it's very low. And since the developer lives in Russia, they've also been affected by the recent sanctions. That means that a lot of funding platforms just cannot send him the money that he's owed. Uh, the platforms just cannot transfer money to Russian banks or Russian accounts. And so, yeah, they're just not getting paid what people have been contributing. So they end their blog post by laying out a few options. So either they can get appropriate funding and and they're basically their, their call for help is heard and doesn't fall into deaf ears, and so they can keep working on the library. Or they will have to turn the library into a commercial project, which is going to be a problem because currently I think it's licensed under the MIT license, and so obviously someone would try and fork it, which probably would have the exact same funding problems than the current developer, but yeah, that's an option. And they could also just stop working on CoreJS altogether, which would be bad because it is a very useful library to ensure good compatibility across all browsers for modern websites. And yes, this story isn't specifically about CoreJS. Uh, th that call for help has already been seen by other uh, developers. Uh, I seem to remember somebody working on the Colors library, uh, which basically borked their own library on, on purpose to show people that, hey, you have giant tech companies using my crap and they're not contributing anything and they're not helping develop the project. And it's a, it's a complex topic because of course you're making open source stuff. So funding is not mandatory. You're, you're agreeing to give out your code generally for free. There are some open source models that sell access to the code, but generally most, if not all open source projects are free to download, free of charge. And so you made that conscious choice. But at the same time, when a project reaches a certain popularity, a certain level of being used, especially by giant companies, you start to think that it would be fair if the people benefiting from it a lot would actually contribute back uh, to the library, either in, in the form of code and, and code contributions or in the form of monetary involvement. It's a very difficult topic and it creates a big, big problem. It's not just, oh, the developer just cannot make ends meet and they're going to have to work part time because it also means that these core libraries that are used by a ton of websites, well, they're not appropriately maintained. They might not be reviewed for security flaws and generally it doesn't give a good value to the work that is being put out in them. And it's true of libraries, but it's also true of our desktop environments of, well, maybe not of the Linux kernel because it does get a lot of funding, but desktop environments, certain applications, they all have basically the same issue. And it's a big problem in the open source community. And I don't think we really have a perfect solution to solve that. Maybe except the pay what you want model for applications, at least, that Elementor OS introduced and that Flathub will also introduce uh, on their portal uh, in the future. 
So yeah, it's a, it's a complex topic. The blog post is definitely worth a read if you want to learn more about the ins and outs of working on such a project. And uh, yeah, it's a, it's a good read. Now, let's talk about Mycroft. I already talked about it a little bit last week in, the, in this very podcast. And basically, yeah, you, you knew that the company was probably going to shut their doors down. And uh, yeah, the CEO just could not find enough funding to keep operations going after already having laid off a lot of the staff. Well, there are some more news now. Uh, they will indeed have to stop operations. It was left in the air last week, uh, as they said, maybe if they can get enough funding, well, they couldn't. And so they won't be able to fulfill the orders made on their Kickstarter campaigns. Uh, they offered their Mycroft Mark II hardware in a crowdfunding campaign. It was just pre-built hardware to run the assistant on. You could just download Mycroft and run it on a Raspberry Pi or other small board computers, provided you added the necessary microphones and stuff like that. But they also offer dedicated hardware for people who don't want to bother with building their own. And apparently remaining devices that haven't been shipped to backers will just not be sent out at all. Uh, they just could not find a reliable hardware partner to provide the Mark II at a reasonable price point. Uh, they already had a first partner that worked with them, but apparently failed to make hardware stable enough to be used. And so they decided to make the devices using off-the-shelf components, but with the increase in prices and the supply chain issues, basically their cost rose from $99 to $300. So when they offered backers the device for $99, it was assuming the first hardware partner was going to be able to deliver. But since then, they couldn't, and so they had to raise the price. Which means that they can still keep producing the devices, but they can only really sell them for customers that buy them from the website at the new price of $300, which means that backers are left behind. They paid for a device that they will just never get. Well, some backers, some already have received their devices. And so th this is also one of the core problems that they had, which is why they had to stop operations. Uh, since they had to work on this new hardware revisions using off-the-shelf components, building some of the devices themselves, they also were attacked by an unnamed patent troll that attacked them and cost them a lot of money in litigation, which meant that they had basically no money left to work on the software itself which means that their Mark II didn't come with the features that other proprietary alternatives had, and so he didn't get any press coverage, it didn't get any good reviews, and so it got fewer sales and not enough money to cover operations. And so, yeah, if you bought or if you still want to buy a Mycroft Mark II from their website, you can, but you'll pay full price, but the last Kickstarter backers just will not receive their devices, which is obviously very bad, but probably out of the company's control right now. And speaking about hardware, Kubuntu is refreshing their hardware lineup. You probably already know about the Kubuntu Focus, which is a very, very powerful workstation laptop with a dedicated GPU. Pretty expensive, but pretty powerful. That obviously runs Kubuntu. And when you buy it, you help support the Kubuntu project. They also had a small mini PC called the NX, Kubuntu Focus NX. And so they're refreshing this one uh, with the NX Gen 2. So it comes with a 12th gen Intel Core i7-1260P. It's got XE graphics, it draws 35 watts, and they updated the connectivity with a Wi-Fi 6E 2.5 gig Ethernet, which is great. I'm happy to see more of these higher bandwidth ports coming to our various devices. They also get Bluetooth 5.3, 
And it also got a ton of ports upgrades. It's got two Thunderbolt 4 ports, two HDMI 2.1 ports, and two DisplayPort 1.4 ports. So basically you can turn this thing into a battle station with a ton of monitors. And it supports up to 64GB of RAM, 6TB of storage, and obviously it comes with Kubuntu, although they went with the LTS release 22.04 and not with the very latest uh, 22.10, which is a bit surprising uh, because you're not showcasing the very latest things that your software could do, which this hardware is just a vector for, so I don't really understand that. Now, it is always super cool to support your favorite distro by buying their hardware, but the price just does not feel right. This device will run you 955 US dollars for 8 gigs of RAM and 250 gigs of SSD. I don't see how they can justify this price for a device that doesn't have a dedicated GPU, has a year-old CPU, and only 8 gigs of RAM. If it was a laptop, sure, for $1,000, a good 13-inch laptop with these specs, yeah, absolutely. But for a mini PC, you don't have a display, you don't have a keyboard to put in, you don't have a battery, you don't have a touchpad. I don't understand how it's that expensive. Uh, so I don't really think this is a good deal. I'm sure you can find way better devices at that price point uh, that would do the exact same role. They probably won't support Kubuntu, but they will probably cost you half of that kind of money. So yeah. I don't really understand where why they went this this way. Uh, the previous one was, I think, around $700 with the same general specs, but just an, an, an older CPU. I, I just don't understand where, where they went with this. It's just way too expensive for what it is. Now, let's talk about AI and the long list of weird stuff that Apple does. Uh, in 2023, Apple released a line of audiobooks that were narrated by AI voices. They didn't hire any actors. Uh, they just released audiobooks narrated by an, a voice trained by a, a machine learning algorithm. And of course, voice actors and publishers were not happy about this because it endangers their profession, so I can understand why. And Apple said they were only doing this on titles where hiring a voice actor would make no financial sense, like for textbooks, for small presses, self-published titles, basically very small run, uh, well, let's not say prints because they're not a print, but very small run files. But it also looks like Apple has been doing something relatively unethical uh, to create that AI voice. They used the voices of various artists from a company called Findaway to train that AI replacement voice. Because apparently publishing their audiobooks on Apple's platform also gave Apple the rights to use Findaway's files to train machine learning algorithms. It was a clause in the terms and conditions. So whether... It's something that Apple added for everyone, or it's just find a way that the company find a way that negotiated this thing uh, with Apple and agreed to these terms. It's relatively unclear right now. Uh, the Voice Actors Union got involved uh, in the case as well. They're saying this, they're working to find a solution to that issue, but Apple has already agreed to stop using all files for machine learning purposes, at least from this company. Uh, I'm unsure if they're doing it with other files from other companies. It hasn't been reported on. But the harm is already done, isn't it? The model is already trained. Uh, the machine learning algorithm has already been running. It's already been using that data. It's trained. And if they felt that it was sufficient quality, 
to be putting out books read by that AI voice, then yeah, they don't really need to train it that much further to still use it. So even though they won't add more files to it to train it further, for now, until this, this issue is resolved, well, they just can still use it for other books. And sure, there was a clause in the terms and conditions, and probably the Findaway company agreed uh, to these terms when they published their files on Apple's platform. But one might argue that this clause can be considered abusive. It has nothing to do with the service of publishing an audiobook from a company. It is a completely separate thing that probably should not have been included in this thing. And whether it's Findaway's fault, uh, the company that represents, uh, apparently what they do uh, is just offer various uh, book authors a way to have audiobooks recorded. They take care of all of that and they take care of the publishing and they don't charge anything to the uh, author. They probably just take a big, nice commission off of the sales of those audiobooks. So maybe it's that company that, to get a more favorable deal, agreed to that kind of AI voice training without the author's knowledge, without the, the book author's knowledge, or without any voice actor's knowledge. Well, the specific voice actors that recorded these find-away books. Because let's put ourselves in their shoes. Uh, imagine that. You're a, a voice actor. You've been hired to, to record various books for this find-away company. And then you learn that this company has basically been selling your voice out to a machine learning algorithm that will replace your job in the future or already has started replacing your job. I understand why they would be pretty pissed and they probably were not informed of that. So there's a problem either between Apple and Findaway or between Findaway and the actors they used. But generally, I think we can consider that this AI machine learning clause can be considered abusive. It has nothing to do in the terms and conditions or in a contract about publishing audiobooks on a platform. Now let's talk about Google. An ex-Google employee wrote a pretty scathing blog post about their former company. Uh, they basically stated that Google has lost its way and has ceased to function as a normal entity. They say that Google is now completely trapped in a maze of approvals, of processes. There are way too many reviews from legal reviews, exec reviews, HR reviews all the time for everything. There are meetings galore, reorganizations every year or every six months. And basically employees are being put in boxes and are encouraged to stop rocking the boat and just go along with the motions. So the author points out four core problems at Google. The fact that the company has no mission anymore, that they have no urgency anymore to release anything, that they have delusions of exceptionalism, and the classic mismanagement that we're seeing in a lot of tech companies, especially the bigger ones uh, these days. It's, being, it's becoming really increasingly apparent that these companies are really badly managed. Now, apparently, employees just don't serve a specific purpose anymore. They don't serve a mission or a goal or even a product. They serve their manager and they're working for other employees as Google is structured in a way where there are entire parts of the company that just work to produce stuff that other teams will use. And so you're living in a closed world where you're not judged on the quality of your work or the quality of the product you put out, but on whether your manager is pleased with you or not. And that's, it's cool to have internal structures that basically write the code or the backend or the technologies that other teams will use. It's absolutely normal. But when most of your company is dedicated to doing just that, then basically the only value you produce is collaboration. 
And while that's cool, it's also extremely hard to be judged on collaboration because it's not just judged on the quality of the work you put out, it's also judged on personal values and personal compatibilities, which means that, yeah, even if you're doing the best job possible, if other team leaders just don't like you or just wanted a specific feature that you were not able to deliver, then you're going to be judged badly, even though you did your job and you did it well. Now, the priority seems to not be on, on really making stuff, making new stuff, inventing, innovating, or improving. It's to seek predictability, reducing the risk. Basically, they all want to under-promise and over-deliver. So employees routinely overestimate the time it takes to produce things. They will say it's going to take them six months when they know it's going to only take one month, but then they're sure that they have at least met some kind of criteria, except it doesn't guarantee quality, it just guarantees that everything is released very slowly. And the company also seems to think that it is absolutely exceptional, which, to be fair, it kinda is. <laughs> like, Google is one of the biggest tech companies to have ever existed, and it is used by virtually everyone at some point or another on the internet. But it also apparently breeds some hubris in employees. Uh, it's fueled by internal memos and internal propaganda to promote the Google way of doing things, to say that, yeah, they have the best tech stack ever, and they have the best technology ever, the best employees ever. They're basically self-reinforcing that belief. And so they have the not-invented-here syndrome, which means that even if there's a web technology that is absolutely very useful, they're just not going to use it. And the author cites React.js. Uh, Google seems to think that everything they produce is better than that, which might not be true. And the author also says that while they personally joined in 2020, by the time they left, they had already stayed for longer than half of other Googlers, which also points out a, a big turnover of talent, as employees just get burned out by this meaningless work that they're being forced to accomplish. So it's a very interesting read. It's very long, but very detailed. There are some super interesting insights that I've tried to condense here. Probably failed at that. It felt rambly, but it's okay. Uh, Google has produced nothing of value in a long while. I, I can't say I'm surprised by that sentiment. Uh, Google has been coasting on their current projects, uh, like YouTube, like Search, Ads, and Android. Apart from that, everything they attempted has failed miserably from Stadia to the tens of various messaging apps that they introduced and then shut down, their really terrible failure of an AI search system that they demoed on stage and just could not get any fact right, they just don't seem to know how to make anything good anymore. Something that is also true of a lot of other big tech companies, uh, like Facebook, for example, with their metaverse being an absolute disaster how it is uh, these days and how they recently showcased it. So it feels like these companies were one-hit wonders. They, they invented something really successful that gave them a real head start, and you can't deny that. Uh, but then they just bought some other successful things to incorporate them in their product portfolio, and they, they just mismanaged things to a standstill. And I'm thinking maybe we're seeing the end of the era where your whole mission is just to collect data and sell ads. Because basically that's what Facebook, that's why, that, that's why these big tech companies that are really showing the cracks in their process and, and how they do things, they're basically showing their limits today. You run out of ways to collect more user data and, and just showcase that to, to advertisers. And you run out of ways to have new ads on the internet. And actually, you're, you're even sort of losing a number of ways to do that with the recent privacy laws. So 
if they just never focused on having a great product, they just focused on having a product that collects tons of data and is a monopoly, which is what they did, well, then in the end, when it starts to, to be time to do something else, to invent something new, to try and move towards the future, well, they just don't know how to do it because they, they just did it once when they were invented. But since then, the company has only evolved to become something geared towards producing user data, collecting it, harvesting it, and selling it. They don't know how to build something. They know how to build a data collection system appended to a product that is being pushed because the company is already successful. And when you've absolutely exhausted all the venues of trying to push a new product, then you have to develop something truly innovative, not just an update and an upgrade. And these companies just don't know how to do that anymore, apparently. Now, let's talk KDE. KDE Plasma 5.27 was released this week. Uh, it's the last version in the KDE 5 series, and the team has already started work on Plasma 6 with all sorts of bigger improvements to the desktop. Uh, they had to make a clean cut to move to Qt 6, to change the frameworks, to actually improve stuff that they could not do reliably in Plasma 5. And so they already started in this work. And in the meantime, uh, we're stuck with Plasma 5.27, and it's a good thing to be stuck on. It's probably the biggest release of KDE in the past years, and probably one of the best as well. Uh, it brings with it a tiling system that lets you create, well, tiles, and seamlessly move your windows to them. You press super plus T to display that tiling layout editor, which lets you create your tiling zones. And then when you leave this mode, you just press shift while moving a window, and it's gonna automatically tile to the thing that it's uh, hovering over. To the, tile, to the tiling zone it's hovering over. Uh, it's, it's a very nice addition. It's very much also a first draft. There are no keyboard shortcuts that I could find. And it's still not as flexible as, for example, the, the multi-window system that Windows introduced. And it's also, in my opinion, not as good as Pop! OS's tiling features, but it's still a very good step. They also completely revamped multi-monitor support. Uh, it should result in a lot more stable experience where your panels, your widgets, your desktop icons and everything else just stop moving around all over the place when you, for example, disconnect your laptop from your external monitor and replug it. Now it should memorize which display is which, where your stuff is supposed to be, where your panel is supposed to be plugged in. It's great. And it's also going to work better for three monitors or more. Uh, I tested it with two monitors on a laptop and it did indeed work way better uh, than the previous iterations. But yeah, your, your mileage may vary. They say very clearly that they didn't fix every single multi-monitor bug, but the experience should be absolutely better. They improved Discover as well with more information, a new homepage to showcase some applications. They updated KRunner with a big logic update, which means that you should get much better results first when you're searching. And most, if not all, the widgets have been improved with new features, uh, better and improved tooltips, middle-click actions to toggle stuff on or off. Uh, they look better. Yeah, they really did a lot of work on the Plasma widgets. They also added a new Plasma Welcome app that presents some of KDE's advanced features in a very nice user interface. Uh, it's basically the same thing as the GNOME First Run Tour or the Elementary OS Onboarding app. It presents a few things you might want to know about, but it also presents a bunch of advanced features like the vaults, uh, like KD Connect, and uh, stuff that was, like activities as well, stuff that was hidden and that I criticized a while ago for basically being wasted features. Uh, they spent all that time developing them, but no one knows they exist. So now people will actually know that they exist, and if they're interested, they can use them. That's really cool. 
Uh, they also did the usual changes to the settings because every KDE version has to have a revamp to the settings. So they, they removed certain pages, incorporating these settings into something else, uh, specifically the launch feedback uh, thing that lets you manage how your little icon is going to bounce under your cursor when you launch a new app. This has been incorporated into the cursors page instead of having its own. Uh, they also revamped the, I think it's the icon sizes uh, panel, which is also integrated into the appearance settings now. Uh, they added a new page for touch screens for flat pack permissions and they added new settings to let you configure how your pen for your drawing tablet works so you can now map the pen buttons to specific actions or command lines which is pretty cool and wayland sessions also now support true fractional scaling which is awesome because things aren't going to be as blurry as they were before and also will use less battery life and net more performance and you also get access to global shortcuts which means it's up to date with what the Wayland protocol currently implements and means that, yeah, it's a solid foundation to wait for Plasma 6 in uh, because you're just going to be able to have a very stable experience whether you use X11 or uh, whether you use Plasma, uh, whether you use Wayland, sorry. It's a great version. I have a dedicated video on my YouTube channel. Uh, the link is in the show notes if you want to watch it. Now, the Thunderbird communication team is on fire. Well, I say team, I think it's just Jason Evangelo, which is a, a you might know him from the uh, Linux for Everyone channel that unfortunately stopped producing videos. Uh, but Jason is an excellent person and they shared a very nice blog post explaining what you can expect in the mail module of the future Thunderbird version, version 1.15. No, not 1.15, 1.15. Uh, it's basically going to be their what they call their supernova redesign, which is going to touch up on every single bit of UI of the application. And so in this blog post, they talk about the folder pane that lists your mail accounts, your local folders. And what they're showcasing looks really good. Uh, the default has way more space between items. Uh, things are just more legible and they look better. And it's probably going to work better for people who only have one mail account. But if you're a veteran Thunderbird user, you can still go back to the older way, uh, to the older look with more information density, which is cool. Uh, they're also working on a new header for that pane uh, with a what they name a meatball menu, which is a three-dot menu. Uh, it lets you get all the options to display or hide information in that folder pane. They get a refresh button to pull your new mail. And then there's a big new message button that is way more visible and probably way easier to click. Now, Thunderbird will also let users turn the local folders off if they want, uh, justifying that by saying that most people probably do not know what local folders are and probably will never use them. Uh, so by default, they still seem on if you use those. But yeah, you can just disable them to not clutter your view. And they also added support for tags directly in this folder pane. Uh, so you can sort messages if you don't want to use folders, but you prefer using tags, you can do that in here. Uh, they will be visible in that pane and they can just be used like you would use a traditional folder. So you can just drag and drop an email to a tag or attribute tags manually to each email. You decide. I really, really like the direction Thunderbird is heading towards. Uh, this is only the folder panel, but from what they already showed, yeah, it looks good. The app will look very much more modern, but it also doesn't lose all the power and all the interface that it used to have. I think it's a redesign done right. It will still satisfy veterans, people who are really used to Thunderbird. And for newcomers, it's going to look like a much simpler app by default, which means that it has a chance to absolutely regain uh, my use case. Because right now I use uh, Gnome Mail, Geary, 
I don't think it's... No, it's not GNOME Mail officially. I use Geary on GNOME, but yeah, it's lacking a few features that Thunderbird has, but the current UI of Thunderbird just does not work for me. And that new redesign looks like it actually might. Now, if you use Fedora, or if you don't use Fedora for a specific reason, well, you're going to have a chance to shape their strategy for the next five years. Uh, the Fedora Council, which is the basically the ruling board that steers Fedora in a certain direction, they listed 18 objectives, which are technical or community-oriented, that they would like you uh, to complete and to contribute to. The mission and vision of Fedora are not up for debate. They are still unchanged. They still want to provide free and open source software to everyone in an open-minded community. But the way to reach this goal is open, and you can discuss all these various objectives in a specific forum thread. So some of these include uh, accessibility in their website, in the documentation, and in the distribution. Uh, more interestingly, it also includes getting Fedora pre-installed on more hardware out of the box, which I think is a very good thing. They want to continue the work on containers, on Flatpak, and immutable distributions, which I also really enjoy. Or they want to make it easier to create Fedora spins with new window managers or new desktop environments. This is all a first draft that can be revised thanks to your comments and your discussions, and other objectives could also be added to the list. So they have a month of discussions, well, they, they will have a month of discussion for each of these objectives to define how you can reach these goals, and then they will find leaders for each initiative, they will define clear outcomes, clear actions, and resources to attain those goals, and they plan to have the complete finalized objectives list in August, and then, well, they just will get to work to try and implement all of these goals. And I really like uh, the approach here. I think it's great uh, because it's super transparent. It lets the community have a say in how to reach a certain objective or which objectives should be reached. And it really helps focus development and communication efforts. It also gives a rationale for people asking for stuff that is outside of these objectives, saying, for now, our plan is to reach these so we don't have time to focus on what you're asking currently. And it also means that the community can know where things are going and how well it's progressing in the future. So I really enjoy this and I wish more distros had some kind of big plan like this. Uh, I think, for example, Ubuntu would benefit from that. It would feel less rudderless, probably, uh, if they had some kind of plan like this explaining what is their goal for the Ubuntu desktop. Now let's talk a little bit about security. We have two topics here. Uh, the first one is sudo. Uh, this is that little command line tool that lets you run commands as the super user or root, even if you're just a regular user. And there's a new uh, security flaw in sudo, which is classified as high level. It boils down to letting attackers add entries to the list of files that the sudo command is applied to because of how environment variables are handled. Basically, you can add certain environment variables to sudo, which lets you add files to a command. And so these files might not have been accessible normally, but now they are. And so this can lead to privilege escalation where a non-root user can access things that they are not supposed to. Now, this flaw seems to be only usable locally, so your servers should be safe, but it's always better to just apply your updates. The affected versions are versions 1.8 to 1.9.12p2, and yeah, you should probably just check. You can use sudo uh, space dash dash version to check which version of sudo you currently use and apply your updates if you can. If there are no updates for your distribution, you can add a specific line in the sudoers file to remove access to the specific environment variables 
that can be used to exploit that vulnerability. I left a link to the blog post that explains how to do all of this in the show notes. And still on the topic of security, it looks like the Python package index or PyPI is being increasingly used to distribute malicious packages. Now there's a security firm called Phylum and they found recently that there were 451 packages containing dangerous payloads uh, that basically just create JavaScript extensions that load each time you open a web browser. And most of the time what they're looking for is crypto addresses that you might have copied in the clipboard and then they will replace these crypto addresses with their own, which means that when you copy a crypto address, it's technically to transfer something to it. And then when you're going to paste what you think is your wallet's address, it's not going to be, it's going to be the attacker's address. And so you're just going to be transferring your crypto to them. So of course it assumes that you're using crypto, which uh, why would everyone do that? But yeah, malicious actors are also seemingly getting better at hiding their intent. Uh, they're using random combinations of Chinese ideograms to identify variables and functions. So they're not easily detected and blocked because that's not an usual way of naming those functions. And the package names are also just using misspellings and typos of the names of popular Python packages. So they will get installed instead of the real one when a developer just makes a typo and presses enter without checking. So if you code in Python and if you use a Python PI, might be a good time to check that your currently installed package names match the real packages and aren't fraudulent ones. And Canonical is now introducing real-time Ubuntu, which is a version of their distribution that uses the real-time Linux kernel. So if you don't know what that is, a real-time kernel is designed to reduce latency. It's meant to ensure that tasks are performed at predictable timings. It basically guarantees that they're performed under a certain number of microseconds. And the goal here is to have an offering for specific sectors, such as industrial work, telecommunications, automotive, aerospace, and defense. Now, real-time Ubuntu uses a relatively old kernel, uh, version 5.15, but it's an LTS, and it has the preempt RT patch sets, which add that real-time support for the x86 and the ARM ar architectures. Now, to access this specific version of Ubuntu, you do need an Ubuntu Pro subscription, and it is available for most Ubuntu variants, although it is not compatible with the live patching system that Canonical offers to reduce server downtime by applying patches without rebooting your, your server. And it's also not compatible with NVIDIA proprietary drivers, which might limit its use in scenarios when you need OpenCL or CUDA. It's absolutely meant for servers, not really for desktops. And whether it's the regular Ubuntu server versions or the Ubuntu core variant, yeah, it's only designed for LTS and servers. Now, what's more interesting is that Canonical is making recent moves from Ubuntu Pro to Ubuntu Real-Time to maybe address more of the professional and commercial sector. Uh, they seem to be waking up and firing on all cylinders. And I'm thinking that might have something to do with the fact that they're probably going to go public very soon. Uh, they, they announced that they were going to go public. Uh, they were going to be listed on stock exchanges. In, in It was a year ago, I think. And so I think this date might approach uh, really quickly. And so if they have more commercial offerings in their portfolio that they just launched, well, they don't have to justify numbers for them because they just launched, but it also shows potential investors that yes, they do indeed have a lot of products uh, that they could sell. And so yes, you should probably buy some Ubuntu stock or canonical stock uh, uh, to support the products and to support the company. I think that's what it is. 
And let's complete this with some gaming news. Uh, first, there's Lutris. It got a new update. It's version 0.5.13, which still weirds me out because it's been out for, what, 10 years and it's still not version 1.0. Uh, it added a bunch of cool things. First, they now support Proton, which should make game compatibility rise quite a bit before you could use uh, some retweaked versions of Wine that also implemented some Proton patch sets, but now you can just use regular Proton, which is easier. They also restyled the configuration, preferences, installer, and the add game windows, so everything should be more modern, more legible. And they grouped configuration options into sections. Lutris always had a ton of configuration options for each game, which is, well, for each kind of game, uh, emulated or Wine or native or whatever. And it's been great, but it's also been pretty illegible because you had to scroll endless lists or endless tabs of various preferences. So if they are grouped, it's now much better. Lutris can also now create 32-bit prefixes for games that require them. They added a workaround to let users identify with their humble bundle, uh, well, IDs and passwords. And they added integration with H.io and Battle.net. And they improved the detection of DOSBox games on GOG. So it's a pretty big release, and I think that with the integration and auto-detection of Battle.net games, which means you just log in once uh, with your Battle.net account, it installs the Battle.net launcher, but it automatically detects all your games and lets you install them individually with specific settings. I think with that integration, it is complete in terms of third-party launchers, because it can auto-detect your Steam games, your EA games, your GOG games, your Humble Bundle games, uh, your uh, Ubisoft games, and also now your Battle.net game. So I don't really know what's missing, but it's basically now complete. It's the entire... Uh, yes, and Epic Games too. Uh, it has your entire game's library available in one single place, which is really cool. Now, there's also a new addition to the long list of compatibility tools for Linux gaming, uh, which is called D8VK, not to be mistaken for DXVK, but it does the same thing as DXVK, but for DirectX 8 games. So D8VK is still in development, but it's moving forward, and it's already supporting a bunch of titles like Age of Mythology, Arma Cold War Assault, Deus Ex, Invisible War, Freelancer, GTA 3 and GTA Vice City, Max Payne, Silent Hill 2 and 3, Morrowind, and a lot more. And some or a lot of these games were already playable on Linux with our current uh, DXVK tools, or just Proton, but a dedicated compatibility library means that the quirks of these older DirectX titles will be handled better, that should result in better performance and better compatibility. And D8VK can also already be installed using Proton Up, for example, uh, if you want to install it quickly and give it a shot. Now we also get uh, the latest source code for AMD FSR 2.2, uh, which is their super sampling tool that just lets you play games at 4K when rendering them at 1080p or 1440p, but with acceptable quality. Uh, it's a really useful system, it's baked in uh, in the Steam Deck natively, and you can use it on Linux with virtually any game if you use GE Proton and you just add a small environment variable before the, the, the game in uh, in Steam, for example, before the, the, the game command in Steam. Uh, they AMD says that uh, this new release fixes a ton of bugs, it improves uh, the upscaling quality as well, and they announced that 250 games now support FSR natively, and that 110 of these games use FSR 2 now, and not FSR 1. Uh, FSR 2 doesn't use the same exact tech as FSR 1, it's just not an update, it's another way 
of super sampling and increasing quality, but generally it has better performance for games that support it. And yeah, the, the fact that basically, yeah, they're saying we have tons of games that support it, but on Linux, every game supports it if you want, which is really cool. And there's also more work on the shader cache for Steam. Uh, this shader cache is meant to let you download pre-built shaders for your games. Uh, those are the things, sometimes you're going to see like a game update, but if you read the details, it's not a game update, it's a shader ca cache update. And there was apparently an issue with these shader caches, uh, which means that you had to re-download them entirely every time they were updated. For example, let's say the developer changed a texture on the game, you had to completely rebuild the shader cache. But you could have just downloaded the shader cache for this specific texture because the rest isn't changed. Uh, but generally people had to re-download the whole shader cache and so Valve looked into it and they found the issue. It's a server-side problem and now basically you should be able to only download the parts that really have changed, which means less download sizes, easier to play your games without waiting for something to download, less connectivity usage for metered connection. It's just a better thing. And so this leads me to conclude that basically I think Linux gaming is going to be a more robust experience in the future than Windows gaming. Because we have better shader handling, we have Proton that lets us fix problems that the developer themselves haven't fixed yet, so we can get better performance on Linux than on Windows for certain titles, we can get FSR everywhere, and we have compatibility libraries for everything, including DirectX 8, which is a pain to get working on Windows 10 or Windows 11. So I think Linux gaming might, in the end, end up being the most comfortable experience for people who want to experience the AAA titles, but also older, uh, well, let's say legacy titles that use weird old technology. I think at that point, retro compatibility on Linux for Windows games is better than on Windows, which is kind of fun. Okay, and this will conclude this episode, so I hope you enjoyed it. As always, you'll find all the links to all the articles I used in the show notes. You'll find links to support the show and keep it user-funded as well. And in the meantime, thank you all for listening, and I guess you will hear me in the next one. Bye!